Welcome back to another episode of the Fed and Fit Podcast. My name is Cassie Joy Garcia, and I am back today with a fantastic interview. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to our next guest. His name is Galen Schock. He is a fourth-generation vintner and the owner and founder of Winefellas. Winefellas works to bring you true natural wines each month via their wine club. I am personally a huge fan of Galen's work, what Winefellas stand for, and this natural wine movement that we're going to hear about today. Welcome to the show, Galen. Thank you. Thank you, Cassie. Thanks for having me on the show. I am stoked to talk about some natural wine today. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited for you to share. I posted a little bit on my blog about natural wines, kind of a natural wine 101. Uh, it was awesome, by the way. Oh, thank yeah. you. In case you guys didn't know, I'll tell you a little behind the scenes. Galen helped me a lot with that article because there was so much that I had to learn to get that launched, and he was really instrumental. We're talking to a pro here, and I'm so thrilled for you guys to learn about this. This is something that I just didn't know. I didn't know that there were things hiding out in that bottle of red on, you know, in my wine cabinet that I that surprised me. You know, we work mm -hmm. to clean up our diet in so many ways. And that was one of the things that I thought was safe. Uh, and turns out there's a lot of stuff lurking there, not just in the bottle itself, but a lot I didn't know about the industry at large. So I applaud you for the work that you're doing. It's really important. And I know folks are really excited to hear from you. So before we get into a little Q&A, learning more about natural wine, uh, I would love it if you could share a little bit more about yourself uh, and your story and what's led you to, to where you are now with Winefellas. Awesome. Yeah. So thank you so much. And uh, to preface here, uh, I grew up in the Napa Valley and obviously was introduced to wine at a very young age. And, you know, after making a small batch of homemade wine with my dad at, a, you know, young, maybe like seven or something, I knew that I wanted to get in the family business. But it wasn't until after college that I really got serious and decided I wanted to tackle a career in wine. So I figured that the best way to do that would be to go work for the largest distribution company in the States, uh, Southern Glaciers, formerly Southern Wine and Spirits. And I did just that and I had an incredible run. But fast forward to 2014, I ended up going out on my own with the ultimate vision to reestablish my family's wine company because there really was nothing left of it besides a seller of antique wines, which are fun. But you know, there was no business. Um, and I also realized at that point that I was about 35 pounds overweight, um, just from the being in the wine and spirits industry for a while, you know, I didn't really feel that good overall health wise. So I had tried some different gym regimens and fad diets up to that point, but nothing really ever worked for me. And I just felt like I was getting pulled in a lot of conflicting directions. So I took matters into my own hands and, and really started reading voraciously and experimenting with you know, different lifestyles and reading up on the ketogenic diet, the primal paleo diet, uh, Dave Asprey's book, and, you know, physical endurance and weight training and anatomy. I, and I started getting really interested in the science of, of the body and, you know, everything that was going on had kind of a general theme. So I ended up kicking the weight pretty quick and feeling good, uh, which brought me to my next epiphany, which was like, I had a serious, you know, decision to make about my future in the wine business because I had given up sugar cocktails and, you know, the wines that I were drinking were kind of clashing with this new lifestyle I was figuring out. So at the time, I was doing some sales work for a local importing company owned by a guy um, named Rob Marino, who was the previous psalm at the infamous French Laundry. And he was tasting me on some natural Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, Cassie, and uh, it blew my mind. I mean, literally, <laughs> the grass gave me whiplash. It was straight <laughs> from the earth. It was like nothing I had ever tasted before. And uh, I knew I had to explore this further because there just wasn't a lot of wines like this around. So 
I ended up taking the next step, which is making it basically my entire focus to find these low intervention winemakers from around the world. And I didn't want to sacrifice, you know, any part of the wine world that I'd learned to love and appreciate. But thankfully, it turns out there's natural wine producers in just about every winemaking corner of the planet. So that's awesome. But I also wanted to learn more about winemaking in itself. And my studies up until that point had been more on a broad spectrum of wine as a whole. And it's really easy to spread the gospel of natural wine, but it's entirely different to, you know, actually live by the principles when you're throwing down your own investment in your own wine and time, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had been thinking about restoring my parents' wine label, Schockenfels, for a while. But I really wanted to learn the actual winemaking process and do it myself, you know, be more hands-on. So I began studying winemaking on my own, and I took all the winemaking and wine um, bi- microbiology courses at UC Davis Extension and was fortunate enough to get some experience shadowing some winemakers and actually out at the UC Davis Winery, which was really incredible. But it's definitely a conventional training. And mm-hmm. I began to appreciate what these natural winemakers were doing just, you know, tenfold. There's a reason... Um, for the conventional process. And I think, you know, the relevant saying is know the rules before you break them. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I figured out was growing and making wine is hard. It's a lifelong journey. You know, you only get one chance to do it every year. So I was drinking these radical wines that were jumping out the glass of me and they weren't in grocery stores. You know, um, the people who made these wines were just fascinating and they had, you know, all had interesting stories, which was really what I loved about it most. And wine had gotten a little serious for me over the years. And this was all about having fun again and drinking these amazing killer wines that complemented my healthy food choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a nutshell, Cassie, that's kind of what has brought me to this point today. Wow, that's awesome. So can you tell us a little bit then, so that's a little bit about introduction to Winefellows, but what was the genesis of this natural wine monthly delivery service um, that you've been able to put together? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, wine fellas started, you know, obviously this is a, uh, a nod to the family that came before me, you know, right. but it also pays, you know, homage to the pioneers of our industry here. Mm. And, um, you know, after prohibition, my great grandfather, Benno started, you know, exporting wine to South America. And then that's what got our family involved in the wine industry. And my grandfather, Ivan followed suit quickly and became a viticulturist here in the Valley. And my father, a winemaker, and these guys shared a rare trait, which was really fostering innovation and, um, you know, keeping a conscious mind of earth and nature while doing it. And Winefellas is about another new wave of this similar paradigm. So, you know, during my grandpa's time and even my father's, winemaking had a way more hands-off approach. And I'm not going to sit here and claim that they were making natural wine then. They weren't. But in retrospect, it was a lot closer. Because if you look at the recorded history of wine, we've been making it for over 8,000 years, I'm sure a lot longer, but Mm -hmm. only in the last few hundred years, Cassie, of things like chemical additives, pesticides, and massive intervention come into the picture. So, you know, I kind of saw this, the wine industry is, you know, kind of in this like plateau, you know, they could use some change. I mean, people really care about what they put into their bodies. It's 2018. And, you know, just as importantly, uh, you know, what we're putting into the earth. We live in a society where, you know, information is just readily available at our fingertips and the wine industry is like, you know, the last to give into the times, you know, everyone else in the food and beverage industry has had to adjust, you know, um, look at like the craft beer explosion, right? There's a section Mm -hmm. in like the liquor store now that has craft beer everywhere. I mean, people care about these sort of things and wine seems like it's almost heavily protected. So I kept asking myself why and 
I created a wine club. First of all, you know, that was everything in it that I wanted personally, you know, cause I wanted obviously to drink the wines, but I also wanted to uh, accommodate other consumers needs. You know, if you can't go into a grocery store and get this wine, you know, you need somewhere to, you know, to find it. And mm-hmm. these, these natural wines are not in Whole Foods. They're not in Trader Joe's. You know, there's no natural section yet. And, you know, even in the restaurants here in the Napa Valley, there's no like organic title on the wine list, you know, and some of the wines will be organic, but there's no way to, to figure it out. It's mind boggling. If you travel in Europe, they're proud of it. You'll see like a little flower emblem, you know, next to those wines at the restaurants. So I really wanted to do something to help this change um, in this movement and something that also represented a long lineage of family belief. And this is what Winefall is about, you know, supporting that change, supporting natural growers and wine producers and bringing something to the wine market that it's lacking, you know, a different genre. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to supply a ton of information because that's what really was hard for me is just not being able to find information. So, you know, we wanted to assure that these wines would fit with any lifestyle, you know, whether that's just being interested in new intriguing wines or supporting small family farms, artisans, sustainability, if you're paleo, if you're vegan, just like a one for all club that you can just kind of, you know, give you some peace of mind. And, um, you know, it's really hard to find premium natural wines and have accessibility unless you're some of the, you know, the coastal cities with small wine shops that are just focused on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that this movement is way bigger than the wine fellows, but we just want to do our part in sharing these esoteric wines and the philosophy that comes with them. Fantastic. Well, you've done a fabulous job with it. And I have a few, I have some of your bottles in my house right now. And since our little girl was born, I've been dabbling in a few glasses. All right. And man, Galen, you and I talked before I was able to really en- enjoy some of them. And they really yeah. are fantastic. There's a big difference. Um, speaking of the big picture, what really is the difference when you've got a glass of a conventional, let's say a conventional cab next to a glass of a natural red? What really is the big picture difference between the two of those? Okay, well, well, first I want to get the record straight. So, you know, okay. there's no such thing as a drinkable natural wine, you know. You're not going to be, you know, hiking in Patagonia and stumble across some fermenting lake of Carmenere or something, you know. Natural <laughs> is the name associated with the genre, but largely this just means low intervention, Cassie, or lowest intervention, yeah. And, you know, the last thing I want to do is create more of a cultural divide between conventional wine and natural, vi- natural wine. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's going to be hard. But, you know, if anything, we need to be more intertwined now than ever and organizing ways to move forward with sustainability. That's the major goal here. But to really answer your question, conventional or commercial wine is, is basically just a byproduct of a mass produced industry. You know, with more production, you need more control, right? Obviously. And, you know, sometimes, Cassie, that control can mean sacrificing the good nature of wine. And natural wine more closely follows an ancient philosophy of winemaking. Not entirely, but just, you know, more closely. That makes a lot of sense. Perfect. Well, can you tell me a little bit, how does, the FDA definitely gets involved in some ways. Um, Tell us a little bit, how does the FDA police what actually shows up in, in our wine on the shelves? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau actually regulates the winemaking materials allowed for the okay. FDA. Got it. And um, uh, I can tell you the TTB approach to regulation is more or less hands-off, kind of like natural winemaking is. Mm. Um, you know, there are rules. And as a winemaker, you have to abide by those rules. But there really isn't any like policing or reporting. You know, you don't need permission to use any additive that's on the approved list unless it's something new, 
you know, for instance, um, like when lysozyme was introduced a few years back, which is uh, an additive that helps control spoilage bacteria in certain aspects of malolactic fermentation, you had to basically just file a letter saying you were going to use it. But that's, that's a rare instance. You know, additives, you know, it's all listed and they have a maximum limit allowed or residual allowed. And it's basically just the winemaker's job to monitor that. But, but that's it, Cassie, that's it. Got it. Very interesting. Um, kind of goes hand in hand, but I think my the Fed and Fit audience is probably used to hearing me talk about the beauty industry, for example. And uh, in the United States, the United we've only really banned about thirty ingredients, um, and there have been over eighty thousand introduced in commerce since nineteen thirty eight when those thirty were banned. And so it's just kind of an interesting parallel, I think, that science has advanced faster than necessarily the ability to monitor what's going in stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's fascinating. So, what are some of the additives? Like you said, you know, we're not necessarily vilifying conventional wine, but high intervention wines. What is yeah. what's what are some of the common additives that are going in these bottles, and what are their purpose? Absolutely. Um, you know, and this is this is kind of a, a big loaded question. You know, by now a lot of us have heard. You know, there's 76 approved additives in America for winemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'll tell you that doesn't mean there's 76 additives uh, additives in your wine. Right. You know, um, but the use of a few of these could steer you away. And the most widely used and debatable topic is sulfur dioxide, SO2 mm-hmm. or sulfites, which uh, is used to preserve wine. It also kills off unwanted yeast or microbes, and it prevents oxidation. And it actually occurs naturally during fermentation, but only in low levels. And later we'll talk about some of the health research, but, you know, right now, let me just touch on the freshness concern. You know, you could argue that we've been using sulfites for 2000 years and that's fine, but you know, how much, Mm -hmm. you know, before SO2 we managed without, you know, wine can stable itself. You know, there's enough stability if you have a proper pH for the wine to, to live on its own. You know, I met a winemaker once uh, from Greece who actually uses native tree sap to protect his wine. You know, I thought that, yeah, it's super rad. They've been doing it for decades and, well, thousands of years, actually. Yeah. And, you know, just because you can use something doesn't necessarily mean that you should, right? Mm -hmm. So the flavors of wines without SO2 added are surely going to taste fresher. And it's really, you know, it takes a person to taste this themselves to understand, like, whoa, you know, you really have to sit side by side and, and taste the wine with no SO2 added and then one with. Mm-hmm. And SO2 can be used in commercial wines during the entire process of winemaking. You know, it's measured in part per million. And the legal limit in the U.S. is 350 parts per million. And as a reference in our wine club, we keep our wines below 50 parts per million. Now, when you start drinking a lot of wine with low SO2, you become really hyper aware of it. And consequently, you know, you could imagine when you start drinking wines with, you know, higher amounts of SO2, you get really sensitive to it. So it's kind of, it's comparable to like ditching sugar in your diet for like a month and then eating a bunch of sugar. It's not going to make you feel very good. So now Velcarin is an additive that is used to kill organisms in wine, but uh, I know you discussed this in your blog. Um, it's extremely toxic and dangerous. It could actually kill you in overexposure, and that's why it's handled in chemical suits by certified trained professionals. Mm. And a reason that someone might want to use this is perhaps the wine had a wild yeast strain causing off odors, like Brettanomyces bruxellinensis, which is another hot topic, hot topic in itself. Okay, but it's not a yeast strain desired by conventional winemakers in America, even in small amounts. So they're going to want to get rid of that. Otherwise they're going to lose that asset. Right. 
So the FDA, like you said, you know, calls these chemicals generally regarded as safe and it's their job to determine that the final product is safe, but not if the final product is good for you or your well-being. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's something to consider. And, you know, then there's the mega purple. It's a food coloring agent that's used um, to get the deep desired hue in wine. And they also use it sometimes to cover up purazines, which are a compound that give a bell pepper flavor to wines. And so the to make this mega purple, they prepare hybrid grapes into a kind of wine concoction and it has about 70% residual sugar left over in it. And they dump it into a lot of wines that are under $10 and mega purple stains your teeth. Have you ever woken up and looked in the mirror and been like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, and it also makes the wine taste sweet for you know the US consumer palate. And there's a whole bunch of finding agents we can get into, but I'll just mention isinglass, which is uh, fish bladder, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of gross in my opinion. Um, There's a lot of other finding agents that are used that are animal based. So they're definitely not vegan. And you know, it's easy to get carried away with all this stuff, Cassie, but I want to be clear here. We're talking about the bottom shelves. You know, the top producers are not just throwing garbage into the wine. We don't believe that, but those bottles cost upwards of 50, 100, you know, two, 5,000, you know, and Mm. it's still a conventional process. The style uh, is conventional. And that's the one that you're used to. So, they're still going to be making adjustments and using some additives. And in some of those vineyards, they're still using Roundup. Furthermore, not everyone can afford to drink, you know, a $100 bottle of wine every night. Right. So, yeah, a Roundup is something I think that we can all agree that we need to rid our community of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned also in the blog, you know, California just deemed glyphosate, which is the active herbicide in Monsanto's Roundup, a cancer-causing chemical last July. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what kind of more information do we need you know, to get this outlawed in 2014 alone, I believe there was something like um, 707,000 pounds of glyphosate used in the vineyards. And, you know, this is public knowledge. You can look it up yourself, you know, and the public's still under the inception that the wine industry is natural. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. It is incredible. I mean, I am, I am in, I'm a nutritionist, right? And I'm in, I'm very much in this real food movement. And I believe that we need to look past the labels, right? Yeah. And the truth of, I, I was one of those. I believed that the general wine industry was a natural one. Yeah. <laughs> it never well, occurred to me. Well, no one's going to tell you differently or no one has told you differently, you know? Right. So I mean, true. It, it makes sense. It does. I think this is a great spot to stop and hear from one of our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers grass-fed, grass-finished, pastured beef, chicken, and heritage breed pork to your door each month. The animals are humanely raised and are never introduced to hormones or antibiotics. I have been a loyal fan and customer of ButcherBox for over a year now and love my monthly butcher box delivery because it helps me get healthy, nutrient-packed protein on my table with ease. To order your own butcher box, head to www.butcherbox.com forward slash fed and fit podcast where you can get $15 off plus free bacon with your order. Again, that's www.butcherbox.com forward slash Fed and Fit podcast for $15 off and free bacon with your order. Well, I'd love to know what are some of the side effects then and health health impacts that can come from drinking wine with these additives? Yeah, well, you know, feeling is believing. You know, I certainly feel a lot better when I drink natural wines. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, this is not to say that there's no hangovers from natural wine. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. If you drink enough of anything, you will surely feel hungover. Yes. But um, as a legendary winemaker, Pierre Auvernois says, well, he's actually convinced that our bodies um, process alcohol in wine without SO2 better. And mm. that may sound ridiculous, but there could be some scientific validity to it. So um, let's first explain the biology of a hangover. And I'll just kind of just run through this. Yes, this is fascinating stuff. Yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty crazy, right? So natural wines, first of, all, first of all, natural wines are lower in alcohol, right? There's less artificial ingredients. So our bodies naturally are going to process it more efficiently. You know, when we ingest something, the liver basically decides, you know, what's good and what's bad. And, you know, when bad stuff comes through, there's a little red light that comes on. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to wine, there's a set of enzymes, dehydrogenases, that attempts to break down the stuff. Now, the byproduct created of that alcohol metabolism or breakdown is something called acetaldehyde, which is actually more toxic than alcohol itself. So then that acetaldehyde gets attacked by our liver stores of glutathione. And we know glutathione, it's the you know, mother of all antioxidants to the rescue, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the catch. Our liver can only store so much glutathione. So it runs out real quickly with a system overload, you know? So- when there's nothing left to fight the acetaldehyde, what do you think happens, Cassie? We're we gonna, get hungover. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we've all been there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So headaches and you know all that sort of thing. So our body's trying to you know get it out, but until our body can produce more glutathione to excrete it out through urine or bile, you know we're gonna feel weak, brain fog, nausea. You know, so um, there's a great book called The Introduction to Natural Wine by Isabel Legeron, Master of Wine. She goes into extensive detail about all this, and I highly recommend the book to anyone who's interested. And they conducted a study at the University of Southampton that concluded sulfur dioxide was also a potent glutathione depleting agent. So if that's correct, mm-hmm. that could also explain, you know, why we process wines more easily with lower SO2, kind of backing up the legendary winemaker Pierre Auvernois' philosophy. So um, Isabel also interviewed a professor at the University of Rome's clinical nutrition, and the professor led a study on how food affects our genes. And they tested 284 genes before and after the consumption of two red wines. Mm -hmm. Now, one of those wines was made with no sulfites whatsoever. And the other was made with 80 parts per million sulfites. And they made a fascinating discovery that natural wine consumption reduces the amount of acetaldehyde in the blood, which again is that byproduct of alcohol metabolism that makes you hungover or, you know, feel crummy. Mm -hmm. Now... You know, lastly, you really have to consider the health of the fruit too, because, you know, I have yet to meet a viticulturist that claims a vineyard sprayed with chemicals produces healthier fruit than one that's farmed organically or biodynamically. Mm -hmm. And lab tests have shown that the polyphenols, which are the antioxidant properties in wine, are higher in organic fruit. So that's another benefit. And, you know, like I said, you really have to experience this for yourself and your body and everyone's different. But I do encourage listeners to experiment and log or record so they know what's working for them and what's not. That's awesome. Well, and the listeners here are no stranger to hearing me talk about journaling, the power of that. Not not writing down, you know, I had nine and a half ounces of wine, you know, being that specific. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like you're saying, the general observations, how am I feeling mm-hmm. after I have a glass of this versus yes. that? 
Absolutely. I think that's fascinating. And to your point, something you said a little bit earlier, um, you know, your analogy of coming off of a sugar detox and tasting some kind of a candy, how much sweeter it tastes. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, coming off of being pregnant for what amounts to essentially 10 months uh, and tasting a glass of wine. My first sip was of a natural wine one of the wine fellas glasses or bottles. And after that, I did try a sip of a convention, more conventional, higher intervention wine, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, and I could absolutely taste it, tasted chemical. I could, it was very Isn't that crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. It was very apparent. Um, and it didn't make, because my body was just so, I had essentially hit that nice, healthy baseline. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I absolutely felt a difference. You had some nice glutathione stores in that liver. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, had, I was all stored up, um, yeah. but, it, but it really did. It did. It made me feel a little bit more crummy, even though I didn't even have a full glass. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so is there a way to see what wines have additives and what wines do not? Because I'm sure folks are listening and they're thinking, oh goodness, well, surely I hope I can just go to the grocery store and turn mm-hmm. the label around and figure this out. Yeah. And I wish I had a a better answer, but the honest answer is no. You know, there are a lot of wine companies out there, but nobody's really sharing that info besides a select few. And, you know, I think a lot of this just has to do with the longstanding non-regulation. You know, if no one's telling you that you have to do it, you're not going to do it. And it really goes against the entire prestige and romance of, you know, the wine package. And, you know, I don't want to take away from that either. You know, I'd hate for there to be a nutritional ingredient label on the back of wine. Right. because I'm a traditionalist and that would look ugly and it, it would be disgusting looking at that on wine. Yeah. But, you know, I'm also a contrarian. You know, we deserve as consumers to have more information about the practices, ingredients, and chemistry makeup of the wines we drink. It shouldn't be, you know, a damn treasure hunt to find this information. Yep. So, you know, at Winefellas, we do provide all that information, you know, and any wine we feature, we're going to let you know, you know, a whole chemistry panel and when we release or re-release my family's label this summer, I'm actually posting everything. I just finished up the label um, and getting it printed right now. And all of these specs are actually on the front of the label, which I think is pretty cool. It is so cool. And yeah. I geek out about it. You send these new, uh, these fact sheets with the bottles of wine and, and you might go a little bit more into this, but it is yeah. fascinating just to sit there and read and know. It gives me, even though I, I trust the way that you source and the way Winefellow source, it's just that extra layer of fun and information to know what's in that bottle. Um, awesome. Thank you. Of, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you for doing the work. Can you walk us through a little bit of the difference? Um, I'm, folks might be wondering, words that pop up in, in the wine industry on us from the consumer side is we see sustainable, we see organic, biodynamic, and now we understand that there is a natural category. Um, what's the difference, you know, kind of high level between those different four categories and what should we really be looking for when we buy wine? Okay, yeah. Um, and this is a loaded question. We could definitely spend an hour on just this, but <laughs> I will um, walk through this as quickly as I can. So sustainability is a great thing. And most natural winemakers practice it. All the ones we work with, um, they're all environmentalists. You know, for instance, we recently featured a wine from Olivier Cousin and he exports his wine out of France by sailboat. They actually put the wine down in the hull of the boat and it stays cool down there, which also obviously saves energy. Yeah. We have some local winemakers, uh, Hardy Wallace, Michael Cruz. Um, these guys use carbon neutral corks along with a lot of natural winemakers and everybody uses old oak in their winemaking. So it's, you know, they're not 
you know, it helps with the deforestation of France, basically. They're not cutting down trees constantly, right? So that's sustainability. It means growing and making wine in a way that logically and socially responsible. There's also the whole vineyard aspect of it, but you know, ultimately it means energy and water conservation and lowering the carbon footprint. But it's definitely a broad term and the standards really vary in different countries. You know, it's something that we need to be working towards in the wine industry as a whole, but there needs to be more incentive to push towards that. And I think that's why it hasn't taken off. You know, uh, it's going to take a certain ag land to become environmentally protected, which makes it a public attraction. You know, that way growers have more motivation to buy in and it's because it's profitable. It's really easy to see why um, growers haven't you know, become sustainable. There's just no economic incentive currently. And it really starts in the local communities. You know, wine regions like New Zealand and South Africa have been doing a great job and are leading by example right now by governing their own sustainability and their own domain, which is really cool. Now, organic wines or certified organic wines are grown without synthetic pesticides, herbs, artificial fertilizers. Okay. GMO products are going to be prohibited in the winemaking. But this can get confusing, Cassie, because there's organic wines and there's also wine made from organic grapes. And those grapes could be certified organic or the grower could be practicing organic. And, you know, what I mean by that is if you think about, you know, let's say there's a small family farm sitting on, you know, two acres or five acres, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to get an organic certification because it's a, you know, it's a pretty big cost. So it just doesn't make sense financially, but it doesn't mean that they're not farming organically. And, you know, in America, sulfur dioxide is actually not permitted in certified organic wines, but in Europe it is. So there's just a lot going on here. And I really hope that um, more people switch to organic farming in America. We're actually fourth worst country for organic vineyard acreage as of last year. Really? Yeah, it's pretty, it's like mind boggling. And climate change is going to bring more droughts and hot spells and water and heat are big issues facing the wine industry. I mean, organic vines, they need less water because the soils get built up with more organic matter. Mm-hmm. And the wines are going to be more resilient in the face of increasing drought and heat waves. So that's something to think about. Now, biodynamic wines developed in the early 20th century by Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner. Mm-hmm. And biodynamic wines basically just practice all the organic rules, but they go a step further and they treat the vineyard as a dynamic holistic system and, you know, making use of things like compost piles from manure and even the lunar cycles. And it's creating this whole living ecosystem in the vineyard and biodynamic wines are amazing. Now, natural wine or low intervention can be very ambiguous because um, there's no certification. And for the most part, everybody agrees on, you know, similar things. The grapes are farmed organically, biodynamically or equivalent. Mm-hmm. You know, grapes are hand harvested. Vineyards are usually dry farmed, meaning there's no irrigation. And, you know, there's not going to be additions of like sugar, commercial yeast, or usually no fining or filtration. If so, it's very light. And they're not going to be using oak, like I said, um, you know, or an influence of oak. So meaning they use old vats or old oak. It's all the flavor has been used up. Or stainless steel, concrete, clay, amophora. So you're not going to be getting those cedar, vanillin flavors from the oak that you're used to. And sulfur dioxide is either completely thrown out the window or it's just used in very minimal amounts. So, and then the second part of the question, I believe, was, you know, what to look for, right? And um, in wines, if you're out, okay. So I think there's just some crucial factors here. Um, you know, wh- what, what's the farming technique, right? You know, is it, you know, is it sustainable? Is it, you know, I mean, is it hand harvested or machine harvested? That's another thing to think about. You know, what's the alcohol level? 
Mm-hmm. Um, if a winemaker is using healthy fruit, right, they're going to be a lot less likely to, you know, be making a lot of chemical additions if they care about sourcing organic fruit, right? That makes sense. Not saying that, yeah, I mean, you know, not saying there's not going to be any additives or adjustments, but there's going to be a lot less, you know? So if you're in a restaurant or a wine shop, you know, just ask the waiter or the clerk, hey, do you got anything sustainable on this list or organic, you know, or biodynamic? And if they don't say, do you have anything from a colder climate? Because you're going to have lower alcohol levels. Ooh, and interesting. yeah, uh, the acidity. And so basically, um, in grocery stores, the wines that retail under $20 are a crapshoot, mm. you know, um, unless you know exactly where it's coming for, I'm not going to just make a generalization like that, but you need to know what, you know, the producer's process because a bottle of wine that costs five to $10 could very well be the same wine you just paid $15 for. Mm. And the only difference is the packaging. I mean, that label you thought that was a small family, you know, winery actually comes from a facility that's bird's eye view looks more like a colony on some foreign planet. So you really have to do your homework uh, these days, unfortunately. I mean, there's nothing else, you know, I mean, it's all you can do is just research basically, which is sad, you know. It is, but you know, but this is an empowering conversation because it just, it makes it feel less of a hopeless pursuit. I realize there's no maybe direct easy button. Besides becoming a wine club member with wine yeah. fellas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, it's empowering and it, and it kind of helps, um, you know, step out of the fog a little bit. So I would love it then if you could tell folks, I'm, like I said, I'm a huge fan of what you guys are offering right now. Can you tell people where they can go to learn more about wine fellas, um, kind of how they might get involved in getting these natural wines in their home, uh, how they might order their first box? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, so we decided to do a special promotion for this podcast and, you know, if any of the listeners are interested in trying a box of premium natural wine from the wine fellas up until April 15th, we're going to give away a complimentary bottle to anyone 21 and up who signs up for the wine club. So we're excited about this and, uh, it should be good for the, uh, for the listeners. So you're going to go visit www.winefellows.com slash fed and fit. Again, that's www.winefellas.com slash fed and fit. And you can select three, six, or 12 bottles a month, mixed red or white, and then you choose your dryness, dry or bone dry, and you'll get an additional bottle sent to you with your sign up. So there's no obligation with the wine fellas. You can hold or cancel your membership anytime. But you know, most importantly, I want to challenge a listener to get out their comfort zones when it comes to wine. And whether it's with wine fellas or, or anyone or organic wines, natural wines, you know, they're is so much going on out there. So, and I hope this information has been useful, but you know, life's too short to drink the same wine all the time. I tell people, you know, there's just Mm -hmm. so many great things happening out there in the world of wine. And if you eat whole foods already, then you, you really have to consider where you purchase your wine. You know, I've always used the analogy of the farmer's market. Everybody storms the farmer's market here in the Napa Valley in California, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, every week. And I'm sure that a lot of the wine they drink at home doesn't match the produce they pick up at that market. You know, natural wine is the produce from the, from the farmer's market. It has an unmatched freshness. It's healthier on our bodies. It's better for the earth. And it supports small producers. You know, the corporations are already sitting pretty, trust me. And, you know, these small producers, they're extraordinary kind, extraordinarily kind smart and they could all be doing something more lucrative, I'm sure, but this is their passion and it's totally one worth supporting. So, you know, thanks again for having me on your podcast, Cassie, and a big cheers to all the listeners out there. 
Man, Galen, that's so great. Thank you so much. What a wonderful offer. And I'm just, I'm so thrilled to have connected with you to learn about, have learned about Winefellas, everything you've taught me. Um, it's really, I'm really, really grateful. So keep up the fantastic work. Um, thank, you, I'll, thank you. I'll be cheering you on and cheersing to you. <laughs> All right. We need, to share, we need to share a glass, actually. We do. We do need yeah. to do that. Uh, one day soon, I hope to connect. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. Everybody who listened, if you were driving along and there were some notes you wanted to take, uh, worry not. We'll have a full transcript of today's show up on the blog, so you can go ahead and get a, a quick visual read-through of what we talked about, all the great information Galen shared. And as always, we will be back again next week. <laughs>